Acts chapter 4. While you're turning there, I share something I read online. It was written by a pastor in an online blog. And I think you can express uh, our sentiments at times and our, our uh, failures in the Christian life at times. This is what he writes. I'll just come out and say it. I missed an opportunity to share my faith. We had a superhero birthday party for our oldest son, complete with capes, decorated cardboard box buildings, a Spider-Man hanging from the ceiling, and at my son's request, a butterfly pinata. My wife had invited an acquaintance of hers with a child around our son's age. This woman came with her two kids and her husband, whom I never met. But we got to talking, and he asked me, so what do you do? And I told him, I'm a pastor. So he followed up. You don't hear that very often. Uh, what got you into that? I was in between filling a bowl of food and grabbing someone a drink, and I was caught off guard by his candor and desire to talk. Has ever happened to you? It seems like sometimes when the witnessing opportunities come, it's at the worst possible time, right? I don't even remember exactly what I said, something about my personality and gifts and growing up in the church. I knew after the words came out of my mouth that I had missed an opportunity. What made it hit home even more was that earlier that week, I had encouraged the middle and high school students in my classes to be prepared to share their faith, and I had failed when the opportunity arose. Wow. Has this ever happened to you? Why does it seem so hard to share the gospel? Why do our knees knock in fear and our tongue get stuck in top of our mouth, and it's so hard to open our mouth and share about Christ? Well, let's read Acts chapter 4 here, verses 23 through 31, to see if we can find the solution to the fear that we face when we go to share the gospel. Acts chapter 4, verses 23 through 31. It says, When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why do the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings, of the, earth, the kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Let's open with a word of prayer this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to come to this church, Lord, here in Texas and worship with this group of believers. Lord, thank you that we have so much in common because we've been washed by the blood of Christ. And we just ask this morning, Lord, that you would do that only what you can do, Lord. You would open our hearts, that you would speak to us, that we would be convicted, we'd be encouraged, and Lord, that you would help us to be bold witnesses for you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So just share a little bit about the background of what's going on here in Acts. Um, the early church was birthed on the day of Pentecost, right? Where the Holy Spirit comes down and empowers Peter 
and he preaches with great boldness, and 3,000 are added to the church. That's the beginning of the early church. And then, at the beginning of Acts chapter 3, Peter and John are on their way to the temple, on their way to the temple to pray, and they encounter a lame man who's begging. He wants some money. He wants some alms. And then Peter tells him, he says, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. So God heals the lame man through Peter right there. And this draws a crowd because this guy is healed of being lame. He's jumping up and down. He's praising God. And everybody wants to find out what's happening. And so Peter takes the opportunity to preach the gospel to this crowd. And then the Lord works. An additional 2,000 people are saved. But this, uh, this makes the, uh, the kind of the temple authorities there, the chief priests and the elders, it makes them mad. It upsets them. They're arrested. And uh, then they... Uh, let them kind of give a defense of themselves, and then Peter preaches the gospel to them, takes advantage of that opportunity, and then they're threatened not to speak in the name of Jesus anymore. Peter responds, and he says, Whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Then they're threatened to go, they're threatened again, and then they're let go. So this is the backdrop of the believer's prayer for boldness that we find here in verse 21 through 31, 23 through 31, excuse me. So verse 23, we're going to go through it verse by verse. It says, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. At the beginning of the verse, we see that Peter and John were released and they went to their friends to tell them about the chief priests and elders' threats. And this is a big deal because my understanding, this is the first time the apostles have been in prison for their faith. That's my understanding. It's the first time they've been arrested, they've been thrown into prison for preaching the gospel. So God had given Peter, God had given Peter and John incredible boldness as they went through this persecution. But would God continue doing so in light of the threats of these authorities? Uh, so when it says here, verse 23, by the way, I'm in the ESV, if you're wondering what version I'm preaching from. Um, so when it says friends there in verse 23, it says when they were released, they went to their friends. It really means one's own or friends of the community. So I don't think these were just casual friends. These were more than likely, very possibly, these were brothers in Christ that were part of that new group of believers, that new group of 3,000 who were saved in the day of Pentecost, the new group of 2,000 that were just recently saved. So this was part of that group, and they were going back to them to kind of give an update and share about the very real threats of these authorities. And these threats, they took them very seriously. Think about it with me. These chief priests, these elders, these are the same guys that had Jesus crucified. They had a lot of power. They had a lot of influence. So they're very real threats. And then in verse 23, it says, I'm sorry, verse 24, it says, And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God. They lifted their voices together. So imagine this group of believers. They come together. They're praying together, which means one mind, one accord. The apostles who had just faced persecution come together with one mind. I think one commentator says, one voice. They lift their voices to God with the group that had not gone through that. So we had the one group in incredible persecution, faced incredible persecution, Peter and John. The other group, they hadn't gone through that, but they're all coming together to pray and seek God's face during these challenging times. And this young church, this early church, they had been practicing togetherness. Go with me back to Acts chapter 2. 
Acts chapter 2, we're going to read verses 46 through 47. Matter of fact, we'll back up to verse 42, and this is a great snapshot of what's going on here in the early church. Acts 2, verses 42 through 47 says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, there's our word, and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So they've already been practicing this concept of togetherness. They'd already been practicing this, and this was a spirit of unity. They attended the temple together. They celebrated the Lord's Supper together with glad and generous hearts. They were praising God, and they were seeing God grow the church. So now the persecution comes. Now they face persecution, and they keep practicing togetherness. They lift up their voices together. They realize, hey, we need to turn to God in this time of persecution, in this time of hardship. It's not a matter of us strategizing to figure out the best way to deal with these threats by the authorities or, or trying to figure it out in our human reasoning. Instead, we need to turn to God in prayer. So this is our main focus this morning, the content of their prayer. First of all, we see in verse 24, back in Acts 4, in verse 24, we see that they recognize that God is sovereign in creation. Verse 24 says, And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. So they say, Sovereign Lord, made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and everything in them. They, first of all, they recognize that God is sovereign in creation. Romans 1, 19-20 says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely, His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. You know, the Romans 1 is talking about the unbeliever there, and creation is one of the witnesses that, hey, there is a God. He is real. He is alive. He is in control, and it leaves the unbeliever without an excuse. Creation is evidence that there is a creator. So at the beginning of their prayer, the apostles recognize that God is sovereign in creation. Next, they remember fulfilled scripture, verses 25 through 26. They say, Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His anointed. So they remember fulfilled scripture there from Psalm chapter 2. And it's interesting to me that right before they quote from Psalm 2, um, it says right here, beginning of verse 25, says, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. What a great testimony that the Old Testament is inspired scripture. Those who doubt the validity of the Old Testament, what did they do with a passage like that? Very, very clearly says, through the mouth of our father David, he said it by the Holy Spirit. So we see here, this is a great testimony. The Old Testament is inspired scripture, and it perfectly dovetails with the New Testament. So we learn here in Psalm 2, this is what the passage being quoted, says, Why 
did the Gentiles rage? So the Gentiles are raging, which means they're restless. They are in tumult or rebellion. They are in commotion. This is what the Gentiles are doing. Why did the Gentiles rage? And then it says, the people's plot in vain. One commentary says, the imagining here involves the mindless or empty attempt to do something to God's Messiah and try to stop God's plan. Not a very good idea of trying to fight against God, of trying to stop God's plan. It's like they're plotting in vain. It's not going to work, but they do it anyway. And then verse 26, it says, The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His anointed. So when it says they set themselves, it's like they're taking a stand against the Lord. They're taking a stand against God. Some of you probably read in the news a couple of months ago when Congress was debating the Equality Act. And there was one a congressman, I don't remember where he was from, I think his name's Stube. He shared a passage from Deuteronomy about how God's Word says that a uh, woman shouldn't dress like a man, a man shouldn't dress like a woman. In other words, there shouldn't be cross-dressers, right? And um, so he shared that passage from Deuteronomy. And a Democratic congressman named Nadler spoke up. He said, what any religious tradition describes as God's will is no concern of this Congress. Wow, how blasphemous. Our country was founded on biblical principles. But he says, hey, we don't care what the Bible says. We don't care about this religious tradition. You ever feel like there are those in government who are taking a stand against God? They're taking a stand against God's Word. So this is exactly what was happening here in Psalm chapter 2. And uh, so Luke, when he wrote the book of Acts, he's the author of Acts, right? And he's quoting Psalm 2. He would have written that in the Greek, not the Hebrew. Do you know what the Greek word for anointed is? The end of verse 26 says that they're taking a stand against the Lord. They're gathered together as well. Against the Lord and against His anointed. Do you know what the Greek word is for anointed? It's the word Christos. Christos. They're taking a stand against Christ. They're standing against the Messiah. That's the word, Christus. So moving on, as the believers continue to pray here, and uh, we'll move on to verse 27 and 28 and read that. It says, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined, to take place. So here we see God's sovereignty and the cross. God's sovereignty and the cross. First we see the who. I'm sorry, first of all, we see the place. It says in verse um, 27, this city, we know that's talking about Jerusalem. That's where it took place, Jerusalem. So we see the place. And then we see the who, this group of leaders that had gathered together, they gathered together against who? Your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. It's interesting to me that they call Jesus holy here. It says your holy servant, Jesus. That's the same word where we call the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, holy Jesus. The early church recognized the holiness of God. As a matter of fact, the next chapter here in Acts 5, Ananias and Sapphira would be taken out. God would judge them, actually take away their life because they lied to the Holy Spirit. And then in and then verse uh, 13 of chapter 5, it says... None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. There was, it was 
a holy church. People were afraid to join this church because God was working and it was a holy people, a holy church. The early church valued the holiness of God. But not only is Jesus called holy, but he's also called a servant. Has been said, Jesus is like the servant David. Back in verse 25, it says, Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant. And now it says, Jesus is a servant. So he's like the servant David, and like David, obeyed God and was fully at his disposal. We think about when Jesus came. Jesus is the King of Kings, He's the Lord of Lords, but yet God's word tells us that He came to serve. He came to serve. Even right before His crucifixion and death, He takes a towel out and cleans the dirty, stinky feet of the disciples. He came to serve, Matthew 20, 28. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give His life as a ransom for many. So Jesus is described as holy. He's described as a servant. And then also as anointed or the anointed one. He was the Messiah the Jews had eagerly been awaiting for. But unfortunately, they didn't recognize him as such. They didn't recognize that he was the Messiah. And then it gives us a list of the people who had gathered together or set themselves against Jesus. First of all, in verse 27, it says, Herod. Both Herod and Pontius Pilate. So first of all, we see Herod. And it's interesting because sometimes we think about Herod and we're like, was he really guilty? What was his role in, in Jesus' crucifixion? Luke 23, 11. Listen to this. It says, And Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arrayed in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. Wow. Herod was guilty. He was part of the perpetrators. Herod was guilty. And then it says Pontius Pilate. And we think about Pilate. And remember how he washed his hands? He said, hey, I'm, I'm free of the blood of this innocent man. It sounds kind of like he cleared himself, right? But in reality, he gives in to the pressure of the crowd. He gives in. He knows Jesus is innocent, but he allows him to be crucified anyway. Pilate was guilty. And then the text tells us, along with the Gentiles, and specifically here, my understanding, it would have to be the Romans. They were the Gentiles. They were the ones that took Jesus and nailed him to the cross. And before that, they whipped his back with a cat of nine tails and pierced his side with a spear. The Romans or the Gentiles were guilty. And then it says, the peoples of Israel, just the Jews in general, and with more specifically that crowd there that was before Pilate that was shouting, crucify him, crucify him. The Jews were guilty. But in reality, as we think about it, we're all guilty. We're all guilty. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Whose sake was it? It was our sake. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's as if we all had a part in nailing Jesus to the cross. So these opponents of the Messiah, these leaders and rulers that have gathered together and set themselves against the Lord, they messed up God's plan, right? They thwarted God's purpose for coming, right? I want you to look at verse 28. This is a beautiful verse. Look at what they did. To do whatever your hand and your plan have predestined to take place. They did exactly what God wanted them to do. Acts 2.23 says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed 
by the hands of lawless men. That's part there of Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. So think about the hands of Herod, the hands of Pilate, the hands of those Roman soldiers, the hands of the Gentiles and the Jews. They were all part of his crucifixion and death, but all along they were being guided by God's hand to accomplish exactly what God wanted them to do, specifically our redemption. Aren't you glad that God is sovereign in the cross? That they didn't mess up God's plan. They didn't spoil His purpose. That they were doing exactly what He wanted them to do. But next, in verses 29 through 30, we see that the disciples make a very specific request. It says, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. So they have a very specific request for boldness. They're asking the Lord to give them boldness. You know, in Acts chapter uh, 9 and verse 1, it was talking about Saul there before he became Paul. And it says that before his conversion, he was breathing out threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Breathing out threats and murder. So these threats are very real. Or very real excuse me. These authorities, they have the human power to imprison, to beat and even kill the disciples. Just a little bit later, Stephen would be martyred for his faith, wouldn't he? Herod would kill James a little bit later, too. So these authorities and these threats, very real threats. But they're making a request to their Lord or their kyrios, which means master. And they call themselves servants. So verse 29 says, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants. You can't help but miss there the master-servant relationship. Master, help your servants. Master, give us boldness. Boldness in speaking the word. Boldness means confidence, plainly, openness, frankness. But wait a second. Peter and John, they were there in front of the temple authorities. They had been in prison and Peter is just preaching with all this power. They were just bold. They were incredibly bold in the face of opposition. Why are they praying to God? I mean, it's right afterwards, why are they praying right to God again for boldness? They were just bold. But you know what? The disciples realized, hey, we need boldness day by day. Every day I need God's help in sharing the gospel. You know, one day you can be a great testimony for the Lord. Say, yes, thank you, Lord. I handed out that gospel track. I witnessed to my neighbor. And the next day, you can be a complete flop. We need boldness day by day. The Christian life is not a spiritual high plateau where if you reach that plateau, you're always godly. You always do what's right. You always take those witnessing opportunities. No, it's lived day by day. Day by day, we have the choice to reckon that we're dead to sin and alive to God. We're dead to the fear of man and we're alive to God and allow the Lord and the Holy Spirit to work through us. So they needed boldness day by day by day. So even though they were just bold, they're praying again to God for boldness. And specifically, boldness to speak your word. Boldness in preaching the word of God. Word, uh, the word for word is the word logos. In John 1, we, we know that Jesus is the logos. Jesus is the word. So when we're proclaiming the word of God, we're proclaiming Jesus. We're proclaiming Jesus. 
Well, let me ask you this morning, when was the last time that you asked the Lord for boldness in sharing the gospel? When was the last time I asked the Lord for boldness in being a good witness? I can tell your church has an emphasis on prayer, and that is awesome. And we shouldn't just pray for um, that the Lord would heal the sick or the Lord would work out our problems. Nothing wrong with that. But we also need to come together, and we need to pray for boldness. You know, maybe because the American church hasn't historically faced persecution, maybe we've kind of forgotten that God is still God. God must do the work. He must give us the boldness. He must save the soul. We need Him to work. I want you to think about the Apostle Paul. He was probably the greatest missionary outside of the Lord Jesus, right? And he went through an incredible amount of persecution. But he has a request here in Ephesians uh, chapter 6. If you'll turn there with me, Ephesians chapter 6, we're going to read verses 18 through 20. And he's asking the Ephesians to pray for him. Ephesians 6, 18 through 20. He says, Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And then he says, And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. You know, there he was in prison with chains. What would our, if we had been in his situation, what would our prayer be? Lord, deliver me from prison. Lord, deliver me from the chains, right? Instead, the Apostle Paul says, hey, pray for me. Pray that God would give me boldness in proclaiming the gospel. You know, one of the things the Lord's convicted me of is that I've picked and cho chosen uh, who I want to share the gospel with. Say you're going through a drive-thru there to get a hamburger at McDonald's or whatever, and you go th through the first window and say, hey, I'll, I'll give that person a track, but I won't do it in the second window. Uh, I see that person over there. I'll, I'll witness to them, but I don't want to witness to anyone else, Lord. I'm taking the rest of the day off. And so I was picking and choosing who I want to share the gospel to. And the Lord has convicted me of that. You know what? I need boldness in sharing the gospel. We all do. We all need boldness. This is a beautiful prayer that right before we have an opportunity to speak of Christ, just to send up a little flare prayer to the Lord. Lord, give me boldness. That's a prayer he hears. That's a prayer he answers when we're faced with the fear of man. Lord, give me boldness. Well, in verse 30, we see at the early church here, they expect God to work. It says, while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. They're expecting God to work, do signs and wonders and heal, all through the name of Jesus. You know, we don't necessarily, we don't really need um, signs and wonders to confirm God's word. The canon of Scripture is complete. But we should expect God to work. We should expect God to do what He says He's going to do. That all of His promises are true. It's interesting here that they say that they're performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. You can kind of trace the name of Jesus throughout this chapter. Go back with me to verse 7. And when they're being interrogated here by the rulers, uh, verse 7 says, And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? So Peter answers them in verse 10. It says, Let it be known to all of you and to all the peoples of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Then he goes on the beautiful verse 
and verse 12. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And then later on, verse 17 through 18, uh, the chief priest again, uh, these guys, just they hate the Lord, they hate the name of Jesus, so they, they say here, but in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. And then the believers get together. They pray for boldness. And they say in verse 30, while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs of wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. You know, there is power in the name of Jesus. There is power in the name of Jesus. And that's why we should seek Him in prayer. Because God must do the work. God must do the work. You know, the godly men of the past, they realized this. I think sometimes um, us as believers and just the American church in general, we've forgotten in the power of prayer. We've forgotten in the power of prayer. If we're all honest, we probably all confess, I know I can, that we don't pray like we should. We think it's all up to us. We don't trust and ask God to do what only He can do. But these godly men in the past, they realized it. Uh, this is out of the book called Evangelism, the Church and Fire. It says, There is absolutely no substitute for this essential. Great preaching will not take its place, nor will a Ph.D., nor a winsome personality, nor a well-planned and executed promotional program, nor anything else. Call the role of history spiritually great. All of them baptize their ministries in prayer. Hudson Taylor called it transacting business with God. Jonathan Edwards spoke of storming heaven by prayer. John Knox wrestled with Jehovah and cried, O oh God, give me Scotland or I die. Of D.L. Moody it was said, He never made long prayers, but he was never long without prayer. I think that's a good principle for us to follow. Never long without prayer. Andrew, Andrew Bonar followed the same procedure and testified, I see that unless I keep up short prayer every day throughout the whole day at intervals, I lose the spirit of prayer. Wow. The godly men of the past, they realized the importance of prayer. So what happened after the disciples prayed? What happened? Was that just kind of it? Just kind of fizzled out? You got to read verse 31 to find out. It says, And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So here we see the result to their answer prayer. God actually gave them a physical sign. It says that it was shaken. So God, God worked so that they could actually kind of physically experience and feel His presence. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And then God clearly answers their prayer. It says, and they continue to speak the word of God with boldness. They prayed for boldness. God gave them boldness. Why can't we do the same? Why can't we do the same? We're not spending much time in this, but there's actually more results of their answer to prayer. In verses 32 through 37, we see that they had unity. It says, The full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. So they, they uh, voluntarily shared what they had to meet people's needs. So they had unity. They had sacrificial giving. They had power in evangelism. Power in doing miracles. They experienced God's grace, God's provision. And then let's read uh, chapter 5, verses 12 through 14. It says, Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest there joined them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women 
so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter um, came, by at least his shadow might fall on some of them. And the people also gathered together from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. So people were saved. People were healed. The church was growing. And it all happened because they prayed. It all happened because God did the work. They didn't work harder. They didn't strategize harder. Instead, they prayed. A hymn writer named Bessie Head wrote, Stir me, O stir me, Lord, I care not how, but stir my heart in passion for the world. Stir me to give, to go, but most to pray. So what are some practical ways, as we conclude here, that we can pray in relation to the gospel for boldness? You might be able to think of some that I didn't think of. But what are some practical ways that we can pray First of all, a very biblical prayer, sound in Matthew 9, 38, says, Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into His harvest. That's a biblical prayer, that pray, to pray that God would raise up more laborers, to send out more missionaries to other countries, to send out more church planters here in the States, to send out more people, more Christian laymen that are willing to be a bold testimony for the Lord. That's a biblical prayer. And then just a few things I thought of, uh, pray that the Lord would help us not to miss witnessing opportunities. God, when I have that opportunity, help me to take it. Help me to take it. I'm not necessarily talking about trying to force an opportunity. The guy's on his riding lawnmower cutting his grass. That's probably not a good idea to chase him down and try to witness to him. But you know when God gives you an opportunity. And if we're right with the Lord, we love the Lord, we're actually going to be looking for opportunities. Lord, lead me to someone I can share the gospel with today. A simple tip is to carry gospel tracts with you. Um, take it for what it's worth, but all the people I know that are good at sharing the gospel, they all have gospel tracts. And it's a good way to start a gospel-centered conversation. Another thing is pray that the Lord will help us to know God's Word. You know, the early church are praying for boldness to speak your Word. To speak your Word. How are we going to speak it if we don't know it? 2 Timothy 2.15 says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Something else I thought about, let's pray that God will help us to teach our children to share the gospel. The Lord really used that in my life. As I was growing up, I was a Christian, I loved the Lord, but wow, I really started to get excited about the gospel when my dad started to take me uh, to evangelize. There as part of our church. We go and knock on doors and knock on apartments and I got to see the consequences of sin. Men that were drunk. I got to see broken families. I got to see people convicted by the Holy Spirit. I was like, wow, our faith is real. It's not just meant for the church house. It's meant to get out and share with others. The Lord really used that in my life. We need to make sure our children know the gospel. They're born again and they know how to share it with others. So let's bring these things to God in prayer, believing that He can empower us with the boldness that we need to share the gospel. Hey, we don't have to miss witnessing opportunities like the guy at the beginning, the pastor who missed that opportunity to share with that friend who was at the birthday party. Instead, we can pray to God to give us the boldness we need to be a powerful witness for Christ. Well, let's close with prayer, and then I'll ask your pastor to come and, and close out the service. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you humbly and we recognize, Lord, that we've all missed witnessing opportunities, Lord. We've all, at times, Lord, been ashamed of you. And we ask you, Lord, to forgive us and to give us a fresh measure of boldness, Lord, that we would realize that we need you in sharing the gospel. We need you in building a church. We need you to save a soul. 
and that we would realize the importance of prayer. Help us all to practice prayer, Lord, in our homes, in our own devotions, Lord, and in our churches. We love you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. I'm going to invite you to remain bowed before the Lord.